This episode is sponsored by BeaverFit. And as always, this is another company that I've not only been aware of for several years, but I also completely trust and I know is a great fit for this audience. Having not only been a firefighter in my career, but also a strength and conditioning coach, I've seen the challenges that we have getting the tactical athlete fit when it comes to budgets, when it comes to space. And BeaverFit has solutions for so many of our challenges. When it comes to space, they have the gym box, for example, which is literally the size of a footlocker that when you open it up and build it becomes a squat rack, a pull-up bar, a box, and even a wall ball target. So you can get a full workout for a crew purely on that one box. Expanding out, they have storage containers that become entire gyms. You store everything in the inside and you can then deploy racks and pull-up bars on the outside. They have gyms on trailers you can take from station to station. They have tactical boxes with breaching props and collapse props. And then on the flip side, the durability is another issue that we see. So often departments buy the low bid, you know, the cheapest they can find. And ultimately that hard-earned wellness budget gets wasted in equipment that rusts and falls apart. BeaverFit's gear is designed to be used in the most extreme environments, whether it's the deserts of the Middle East or simply on the deck of a naval ship. So they are designed to not only be outside, but to be beaten up by some of the most elite operators on the planet. Now, they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 10% off your purchase. So if you go to either the US site, which is graymangear.com, or the UK site, which is getbeaverfit.com, use the code BTS10, that's BTS10, and you will get 10% off your purchase. If you want to hear more about this company, and I'm sure you do, Listen to episode 477 with the original founder, Tom Beaver from the UK, or the founders of BeaverFit USA, Alex Rudhouse and Mike Taylor, on episode 457. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. 
So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 481 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Mark Polymeropoulos. Now, Mark is a veteran of the CIA, rising through the ranks from case officer all the way through to a very high leadership position. So we discuss a host of topics from what the CIA is doing for this nation behind the scenes, grooming agents, leadership, physical fitness, mental health, and his new book, Clarity in Crisis. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I truly do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Five-star ratings truly do elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 of the greatest minds on planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Mark Polymeropoulos. Enjoy. Mark, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. I just finished the book, um, so I'm very excited to hear your story, but welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's awesome to be here. I'm excited to talk about the book, and uh, no, this is great. Thank you. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? <laughs> so I'm in Vienna, Virginia. <clears throat> it's a suburb uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. It's, uh, it's a place where my wife um, actually grew up. And so after kind of all of our crazy overseas exploits, this is where we decided to settle down. Beautiful. Is that the location of the Vienna Inn then? It is. So the Vienna Inn is a key part of the book. <laughs> it's, it's scarily enough. It's kind of almost a key part of my, my retirement, my life. But yeah, it's a, it's a classic dive bar in Northern Virginia. Um, and uh, it is literally within walking distance. And I might or might not be there later today. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Beautiful. All right. Well, then i like to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure, sure. So it's, you know, I think, you know, in some ways I was, it's not surprising where I ended up uh, kind of with this crazy career in the intelligence community. I was, I was born um, in Athens, Greece. My dad was Greek. Uh, he, you know, he, he went to the United States on a Fulbright scholarship, met my mom who was, so my dad's Greek Orthodox. He met my mom was a nice Jewish girl from Long Island. So, you know, uh, uh, what a, you know, this, and this is a long time ago, this is in the sixties. And so <clears throat> kind of a, a really unique kind of, uh, uh, courtship and wedding. And then he received his PhD from, uh, from Cornell and, and he had to go back and in his mid thirties had to finish his Greek military conscription. Talk about something he didn't want to do. Um, but ultimately I was born in Greece because of that. And, uh, I was actually, you know, my mom went into labor on the Greek Island of Mykonos and they flew me by helicopter, uh, to Athens. And so, they, we stayed there for a bit, came back, and he, he became a professor at Rutgers University in New Jersey. So I grew up in New Jersey. But I had this really kind of, you know, interesting background, of course. I think we celebrated every holiday, you know, 
um, uh, uh, you know, uh, known to known to mankind. And but also every summer went back to the Greek islands and <clears throat> excuse me, into Greece, where, you know, for for two months, um, you know, we'd spend, you know, sometimes there, but sometimes in Europe. So I really got the travel bug and I had this kind of, you know, really, you know, you know, vast view of what the what the world was like. And and I think that then the, the key trip I took when I was 10 years old, my dad had a sabbatical in Algeria. So, you know, I I've, I my mom put me on a plane and I flew to North Africa and my father and I drove a Volkswagen minibus uh, 2000 miles for a month through the Sahara Desert. So that's how, then I, that's when I decided I wanted to be Lawrence of Arabia. So that's how it all began. <laughs> well, it's a hell of a story. And your parents got divorced. Is that right? That's why you went yeah. to separate places. Um, so when you hear him talking, though, how was that received? You know, you have an Orthodox, you know, Greek and then uh, a Jewish woman for America, because we always think of tension when it comes to skin color in the, you know, oh, the, 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 yeah. the worst parts of the world in the olden days. But how was it received as far as religion wise? Well, terrible on both sides of the family. You know, easy for me when I was growing up because I got a lot of presents um, for every holiday. <laughs> no, I mean, so, you know, my it's, uh, you know, it was it was. You know, a, a Jewish. My mom was from a Jewish family in Long Island. My grandfather was the treasurer of it's called Temple Emmanuel, which is like the you know the, you know one of the one of the most significant temples in the United States. And then he you know and my mom ends up marrying this kind of you know Greek Orthodox uh, from Athens. She actually converted when they got married, which caused problems on my mom's side of that family. But they got divorced and she converted back. And so you know I, I don't even know who the hell knows what what I am now. So. <clears throat> but, the, but the important part of all this is I really had this kind of unique view of the world and it was very accepting. Um, uh, and so, you know, when I say, I mean, I, it's, it's easy for someone to say this, you know, you know, there's no kind of, you know, discriminatory bone in my body. So I, you know, I, but it's true. And, and then I end up going and living in the Arab world in the Muslim world for my career. And so, you know, I just, when I, when we, we joke about, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of my life and then, and then even for, further forward, I marry a Lebanese Catholic. So I just I need a Buddhist in my family somewhere, and then I'll just be totally complete. Um, and so you know, but but on a serious note, it really gave me this kind of unique perspective. So you know, I was my eyes were open, and I was really excited to kind of kind of you know leave the United States and go on this kind of crazy adventure. So with a ten-year-old American boy, what? Tell me about that journey. What was that like? What What were the highs and what were the lows? Well, I mean, we're sleeping and, uh, you know, we're driving through the Sahara Desert. This is before an, a, a, an Islamic insurgency really racked uh, North Africa and Algeria in particular. <coughs> Excuse me. And so so ultimately we're sleeping in, you know, desert towns I and mean, there's nobody around. I mean, it was crazy. And, and just and but but I love I fell in love with the Middle East, with the desert. Um, I knew I wanted to do something in that part of the world. And, uh, you know, it's just that sense of adventure. I mean, you know. Later on, when I had my postings in the Middle East or even kind of war zone tours, you know, in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, you think back to those times. So, you know, I, I was, you know, I, I didn't need things like, you know, the creature comforts that, that others were, were used to. I mean, I like that sense of adventure. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, you talk about, you know, going to kind of nasty hotels. Well, I saw some nasty hotels in 1980 in the Algerian desert, the Sahara desert. And so, um, you know, and, and, but there's one other significant thing, James, that happened is I, I read a book at that time, um, and it was by uh, the author James Michener. It's called Caravan, and it was about a young foreign service officer uh, in Afghanistan in the post-war period as a State Department officer. But it really told this incredible kind of romantic story of what life was like in Afghanistan, and that kind of got me got me going too. And it's it's really ironic. Years later, when I went in with one of the teams after 9/11, I remember in Helmand Province, in the middle of nowhere, sitting cross-legged talking to an Afghan tribal leader. 
I thought back to that time when I read that book when I was a young boy about Afghanistan, certainly a different place, but I think it was always, you know, it was always in me to do something different. And so, you know, I went to Cornell University, got my undergraduate and graduate degrees there and got recruited by the CIA and off I ever went. And, you know, good thing I wrote a book now because that's the only job I ever had. So, so I think I'm uniquely unqualified to do anything else other than, you know, be an intelligence officer, write a book or talk to you today. Yeah, brilliant. We'll talk about transitioning out later because that's a very important conversation as well. Um, just before that, I mean, obviously you were very active. You were, you know, boots on the ground. You weren't sitting behind a, a desk the whole time. What about physical preparation? Were you a sportsman as a kid? You know, what, what were you doing that, you know, through that lens that prepared you for this job? Uh, what, what, a, what a great question because even as I, as I think about, you know, my life now, and even when I write on, you know, uh, on leadership, you know, I was a sports fanatic. Um, so, and I played ice hockey, um, which is a kind of a tough sport. I think I, you know, I got my, certainly got my head, you know, dinged a couple times and, and got my share of scraps. Uh, my father tells great stories of, you know, so I grew up in Jersey and we're up in the, the ironbound section of Newark, New Jersey, which at the time was a really rough section. And, and I got, I got into a fight when I was like 12 in the game. And my dad and I are running to our car in the parking lot with the other team, like, chasing after us to get back <laughs> to, to New Brunswick. So no, I, so, but I think sports had, a, it was a huge, you know, part of my life growing up. And so that, you know, I, I was obviously, I, you know, I, I'm a bit of a type A personality, but this competitive spirit and I hate to lose. Um, and I played everything. So I, I remember, you know, my father tells this story when I was, you know, I was, I think it was the state semifinals of, uh, of doubles and, uh, and we we're up five, two in the third set and my partner and I blew it. And I proceeded to smash my racket and throw it over the fence. And this was in high school, and and I was and my father was not too pleased about that. But I I have a, I have a super I can't golf. I will never be a golfer. Um, I'm just way too competitive a personality. I hate to lose, and so uh, I, I know that about myself. <laughs> well, another you know reoccurring theme in the book is obviously baseball. So were you playing that as a young man, or did you get into that later? So, so baseball is something I played when I was little, um, you know, little league and, and then up to a period after, but, I, but I became a, a fanatic fan. So I, so I love baseball, um, deeply and, and it was only in, you know, and, and so I, I was, you know, I was, I was a fan for years and years and, you know, I was, I was a huge, started off as a Mets fan and I became a huge Red Sox fan and, and now I live in Washington. Um, and so we follow the Nats, the Nationals. But it was really my son who, you know, is playing baseball in college now. Um, and, and that's when I really started, you know, getting into kind of the coaching aspect. And but then but then really, really what I found interesting is I kind of, you know, became more senior at CIA. Uh, uh, and I started thinking about leadership is, is, you know, baseball has so many parallels into the kind of the espionage business. And so, <clears throat> you know, it's all about kind of overcoming adversity. And, and so I, I started looking at baseball even differently. And it's really in the book quite a bit. Um, about lessons learned from what is a really hard sport. You know, another frustrating sport. I mean, you hit 300, that means you actually fail seven out of 10 times. Um, but yeah, so baseball is, you know, still is a passion of mine. You know, in fact, after we do this show right now, I'm heading off to, we have season tickets to the Nationals. So I'll be going to the Nats game tonight. Taking my, my wife and my daughter. My son is, my son's not even coming. But um, yeah, but sport's a huge part of my life, no doubt. Beautiful. Yeah, I thought one of the interesting stories you told in the book was your son when he was very young playing baseball in the Middle East and then coming back and saying it was so weird there being grass on the pitch. Oh, yeah. So, so you know, and it, it was it was we're 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 in the Middle East. Um, we're actually in Jordan. I don't know if I say that in the book. I'm probably not supposed to, but we're in Jordan. And so he was eight years old and he starts playing, you know, for the first time and he goes out and there's a Jordanian coach and he's throwing underhand. And I'm watching in the stands and I'm like, this is not right. So I went and I fired him, walked out right into the field, fired the coach on the spot who was horrified. And that, you know, that then I was the first kind of his first young coach. 
Um, <clears throat> but coming back to the United States was interesting. I mean, you know, all of a sudden you see these grass fields and, and you talk about kind of, you know, again, it's, it, this is, I, I love stories of, of people overcoming adversity and striving to be great. And my son rolled into little league as a, as a, you know, as a nine and 10, as a 10 year old, even nine year old way behind all the other kids. Um, but busted his butt and within two or three years is the, you know, is, is the, you know, is the best player in the league and ends up being a captain of his high school baseball team and is playing in college now and is all based on kind of purely hard work. And so there's little things like that, which, which kind of, I, I, I look back to and, um, very similar to kind of my life at, at CIA, but also with what you can achieve in baseball, um, in terms of, in terms of just kind of putting your, you know, your head down and grinding through. Um, and so, yeah, so, so baseball is a big part of my life, even now today. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned the CIA. So I, my side gig, my side hustle is I do stunts and I'm in this, uh, stunt show now in Universal Studios, which is the Jason Bourne stunt show. Whoa. So I'm, I think I've got a pretty good grasp of what the CIA right. is based on that show and that story. So, <laughs> so what I would love to do, assuming you're going to correct me and say, no, there's nothing like that in real life. Um, could you give people the history, you know, OSS and then, you know, CIA kind of, and then what they do? Oh, because yeah. we do get a very jaded lens, I think, same as police, you know, at the moment, um, of what the CIA is. And there's always, you know, political leanings and things. Now, obviously, you guys are doing incredible things behind the scenes to protect the uh, the people of this country. So, so firstly, is it like Jason Bourne? <laughs> no. <laughs> no <laughs> all right, so, all. secondly, <laughs> let's let's hear about what it actually is. Right. You know, so I have, you know, I, I have my, you know, I have not much hair left, and I have this kind of nasty this goatee, and I wear my kind of, you know, my cool Oakley glasses, and so I look pretty cool. But no, <laughs> what, we, what I was so so someone asked me, you know, do I have to be physically fit to join the CIA? Well, the answer is, look, if you're going to go to Iraq or Afghanistan, sure. But, you know, you, here's your biggest skill. You better be able to type. And they say, what? I'm like typing. Because if what you do, as heroic as it is, you know, is not put in a cable. Um, so get your typing skills up and they all laugh. Uh, but, no, I mean, look, the, 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 you know, the CIA, the movies, has nothing to do with, um, with, uh, with, with what the job is really like. Uh, because, because in essence, and I talk about it in the book a lot, you know, uh, the life of an intelligence officer is not really – it's not killing people like Jason Bourne. The life of an intelligence officer, an operations officer, what I did was spotting, assessing, developing, uh, recruiting and handling you know, agents. And an agent, I wasn't a CIA agent. An agent is a foreigner who we recruit. It's a Russian, you know, Pakistani, uh, you know, uh, Iranian, you know, Chinese, you know, government official or someone with access to secrets who we recruit, um, convinced to spy for the United States to give us protected information. So. So really, your job is, is more of a psychologist. You know, I always used to say, you know, I, I, you know I, I was living in a psych, not a psych 101 university class, 501, because I had someone's life in my hands. Um, I had to convince them I would keep them safe and we have to convince them to keep providing this information. Now, you know, me, there's, there's always several things like, you know, so why would someone spy? So maybe it's for ideological reasons. That was really common, you know, in, in the Cold War. But now maybe it's they want their kids to get, go to school in the United States or you know, maybe they've, they're, they're disgruntled. They've hit the glass ceiling for some reason, but there's, there's something in it that, that they see the United States as, as, as kind of a savior for them. <clears throat> so, so ultimately, uh, you know, that's your job is, is to keep people alive. And in the book, I tell this story about an agent I once ran in the Middle East. And, and, you know, when I was younger, a young a junior officer, and he took me aside and he said, look, Mark, you know, I just want to let you know that, that, you know, uh, you know, you can't make a mistake. You know, my life is in your hands. And so, you know, you might go watch a football game, you know, uh, on, on, on the weekends. Um, you might, you know, go for a picnic or, you know, lunch with your family. But every day I'm going to think of you because if you make one mistake, I'm going to die and my whole family's going to die. And so, 
So ultimately, it's a it's you know it's it's a psych five hundred one class. It's very it's a it's this marriage. It's this relationship you have with your agents, and you know it's not the it's not the you know the stunts, unfortunately, of uh, of uh, of Jason Bourne. Um, others, although you know we all love those movies, but not really. <laughs> part of reality well i'm glad that you brought up that story because i had that written down for a very specific reason yeah. we we should think of exactly the same way in police and fire and ems because i think the complacency is very easy to to slide into and you, you know what you've just said is exactly the the kind of unspoken voice of everyone that we potentially interact with whether it's a firefighter you know making their way up to the top of a building and owning their own fitness whether it's a law enforcement officer have you know studying jujitsu so they don't pull their gun on on you know a teenager reaching for his driver's license and so you know that was a very very powerful you know element of the book to to remind ourselves that just because we're on our day off or whatever it is that our training, our fitness level, our mindset is completely directly, you know, linearly related to whether someone lives or dies. And if we forget that, that's how, you know, sadly you see some of these horrendous you know, tragedies unfold that we see on, on video recently. That, that, you know, uh, James, that's so true. I, I actually, you know, I, I wrote this book and there's a couple, you know, there's some of the audiences in mind was certainly kind of the first responder community. There's no doubt because, you know, the stakes are so high and because your training is important and because your ethics and integrity are important. Um, and because a lot of times, you know, we, we live in that same kind of world where you're not appreciated, frankly. So, you know, the CIA lives in the shadows. Our successes are unheralded. Our failures are trumpeted all over, you know, uh, uh, all over the place. Sounds familiar to, you know, probably to a police officer at, at times. And so, um, you know, I, I, I ultimately, I, I find a lot of parallels in that. And, and, you know, I think that there's, uh, there is a, you know, there's a moral and ethical code that, that we live by, I, you know, so people, you know, people might read this book and say, oh, wait a second, the CIA officer is talking about ethics and morals. But actually, when you walk into CIA headquarters, on the right is the memorial wall, which was 137 stars of officers killed in the line of duty, many of them, you know, who, who I knew personally, and I was involved in operations, unfortunately, where, where they lost their lives. But on the, on the left, there's a biblical verse, and it says, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And, it, and that's the kind of fundamental belief that that integrity is everything. And so it's really important that, that we understand that. Um, and, and, and there, you know, there's an aspect, too, of life as an intelligence officer and where we work alone. So, for example, if I'm going out to meet an agent, I have to do something. I run a surveillance detection route. I got to make sure no one's following me. Maybe I'm carrying, you know, two hundred thousand dollars in cash. I have to pay this agent. This agent's going to give me a report on something that's happening in his government. It's only the two of us right there. So. If you don't have the, those ethics and integrity, you know, you got nothing. And so, you know, that that to me is, a you know, a really big responsibility as well. So, you know, with the story that I told about about what that agent said to me, you know, about the need to keep him alive, um, plus the idea of integrity. But, you know, like, wow, you know, here's a junior operations officer. You know, you get out of training. Maybe you're 30 years old. It's a lot on your shoulders. Um, and that's, you know, that's that's what I wanted to talk about in the book and celebrate because I don't think a lot of people understand that. No. Well, well, I had uh, Emily McCarthy on who um, was a, I, got, I called her an agent, which obviously I know is wrong now. I forget the exact term. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, she was working in Africa as well. And she's a petite woman, you know, attractive woman. And the courage that you guys must have, you know, to be out in these places, obviously surrounded by, you know, warlords of all shapes and sizes and to operate in that way when 
you know, my profession is known for us working in teams, whether it's, you know, two of us working an actual task on the fire ground, but obviously we're arriving in an engine or whether it's law enforcement, I hopefully at least, you know, a bunch of them show up at once. So with that, before we kind of move on, you know, what was that like when you first found yourself in whatever, you know, arena you were in initially on your own prior to which you'd been, you know, in academies and, and, and areas where you've been either on domestic soil and or surrounded by a team? So, you know, so, you know, our, our training is is very realistic. So we go through a year of what we call tradecraft training at a secret military base in the United States, which, of course, everybody knows the name of it, but I can't say it. I'm the only one who can't say it. But you go through a year of, of what you call tradecraft training. So you, you are taught how to operate on your own. And, and it, just like, you know, um, you know, there are fundamentals for a Navy SEAL has to be able to shoot. You know, that's so it's a, an intelligence officer has to be able to run a surveillance detection route. Which means if this is to get from A to D, you know, the, the location where I'm meeting the agent, we have to take a circuitous route. Maybe I'll change, maybe I'll be in disguise, maybe I'll get out of a car, maybe I'll walk. But it all designed to detect, you know, if someone is following us. And that could be four, five, six hours, sometimes even a day or two days. I mean, if you're in a really high counterintelligence environment. So so ultimately in training, you learn to operate on your own, but you better have that confidence to make those key decisions along the way. These, you know, you call them decision points. You know, am I being followed? Well, you can't be wrong. If you're wrong, someone can die. And so by the time you get to the field, what we call it overseas, you know, you're actually pretty well trained up. And the irony of this, the whole thing is, and and maybe it's a little different than with, with firefighters or, or police officers. You are, you are at times more effective on the street as a junior case officer because you're fresh out of that surveillance training than you would be after 15 years where you kind of start picking up bad habits. Um, so it's, 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 uh, it's kind of interesting, but yeah, but you learn you learn to, to, to operate on your own. And, uh, it's just, that's just one of the, and if you can't do that, it's not just, it's okay. It's just not the right job for you. You know, I tell this to people all the time. Um, you know, so, you know, I always, you know, the case officers, you're the tip of the spear, you're the firefighter, you're the, you're the pilot, you know, whatever you want to call it that's, uh, as an operations officer, what I was, but there's a thousand other jobs at CIA, which are equally important. Um, it just takes kind of a unique skill set to be able to do. Um, you know, what we did with that kind of sense of confidence. And I'll tell you when you make, there's sometimes you make decisions. So <clears throat> you're running a surveillance detection route. And it's a high threat area, a high counterintelligence threat area. You got to make the, the determination if what you're called black, that means you're clean. There's no one following you. Like you're, you're no, no matter who you are, your heart's beating at that point. You made the decision to, I'm going to meet an enemy territory, someone who's spying for us. If I'm wrong, the guy or gal's dead. So your heart's beating no matter what. I mean, I, I don't care who you are. And that's good because, by the way, if it's not, then you've lost that edge. Absolutely. Well, I think case officer was what Emily was as well. So I think that's the yep. right term. Um, with that being said, so you are, you know, again, in this environment on your own. What level of defensive tactics, you know, weapons training do you guys have to, to be out there and be deployed? You know, what, what a great question, because ultimately, so so first and foremost, in general, unless you're in a war zone like Iraq or Afghanistan, a CIA case officer is not carrying a weapon. And there's a reason for that. And and, and some people kind of dispute this or not, but <clears throat> you don't you don't want to be in the position where you have to use it. That means something's gone really wrong. Um, now, sometimes if we, you know, if we're in a war zone in Iraq or Afghanistan for defensive purposes, you always have to. Um, you know, we do go through some defensive tactics training. I mean, there was, you know, there was, uh, 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 there were some courses I went through, which, which just to be honest, were great fun, um, in certain, you know, in terms of, of, you know, the, uh, uh, defensive tactics, but, but ultimately you never want to put yourself in the position where you have to use that, but, you know, that, that is really a last resort. Um, <clears throat> and so there's very few instances of CIA officers getting 
you know, getting into kind of, uh, you know, physical or armed confrontations. Um, if that's happened, something's gone wrong because ultimately we call, you know, you want to get off the X. You don't want to ever be in that position, uh, primarily because we're operating on our own, uh, you know, uh, uh, so often, but, um, but it's important to have that, uh, uh, there, and, and there, there always is an ongoing debate, you know, within the, within these, the CIA about, you know, the, um, you know, the, the wisdom of carrying, uh, you know, a weapon or not. Um, because sometimes it gives you a little bit too much of a crutch. Uh, you might go into a situation you shouldn't knowing that you have, you know, your Glock on your side. Now, now, as a matter of fact, especially in kind of, you know, in, in some, in some locations, you know, where everyone's carrying, you know, AK 47 automatic weapons, that Glock's not going to do much for you. So it's better off. You're not there, you know, uh, to begin with. And then, and let me just throw in, then there's other times where we do have high threat meeting scenarios. Well, we, we will have multiple people on site. We will have people with weapons if there's, if there's really a high, high risk meeting that we have to conduct. Well, just staying on that for a moment and doing a tangent, um, you know, obviously we have people in law enforcement around the world who don't carry weapons. And then obviously here in the US, you know, many of them, or well, all of them are carrying and also we've got tactical vests and all those kind of things. And, you know, there's so many layers to the conversation. One is, is definitely legitimate. Um, though it's, I think, a vicious circle. The more tactical gear an officer is wearing, the more that kind of escalates, you know, that, that interaction in the first place. Through a CAI, a CAI, a CIA, um, case officer's lens, being able to, to use your voice and your intellect so skillfully, you know, in a lot of these situations that you're at, what would be some of the advice that you would give to, to agencies to add that to their tool belt? Right. So, I mean, everything has to do with that personal interaction. And so, you know, there are times we would have, you know, you know, uh, uh, agent meetings that, that kind of turns that go south, or maybe you have something called a walk in a volunteer and you know, this person's not, you know, not legitimate or not, but if it's, it's how you, I mean, look, you know, again, I always talked about our, our job as being kind of psych 501. You're a psychologist. So you have to talk them down on things. If you know, someone is lying, you know, you know, you don't necessarily kind of brace them to their face. So maybe we have someone who's trying to give us information. You know, it's not legitimate at all, but you're going to, you're going to, you want to get yourself out of that situation. So, you, you know, you thank them for your time. You might even pay them some money. Um, and say, you know, we'll see you again in the future, knowing full well you won't, as opposed to bracing them and kind of having some kind of hostile uh, uh, confrontation. But I think, you know, the, the, the whole debate on law enforcement now, in, you know, really interests me tremendously. And I read everything on, on social media about and, and there certainly is a line of thinking, you know, in, you know, in some police departments that that kind of de-escalation is really important, that de-escalation training and not necessarily defensive tactics, but even, you know, you, you know, you know, rolling into a situation, um, you know, what is your first reaction? Uh, uh, and because and because the other thing, too, is so often. You know, you know, your first perception, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're getting on site in any manner is, is the, you know, your situational awareness isn't very good. So, so it's not right. Um, so it's, again, it's, it's there. I have, I have, I, have, there's one senior, you know, he's retired now, senior officer. He managed, you know, he was in the senior intelligence service, one of our most legendary, um, uh, officers in the Middle East really refused to carry a weapon. He said, I don't want to have this. Um, and so, you know, and I kind of understood that I didn't, you know, I would, there are times where I did think I needed one. Um, but boy, it's a, it's, it's all about your personal interactions with folks. And that's what we're trained to do as an intelligence officer, the case officer. Again, it's, it's the, it's the human reaction interaction with someone else. Um, and it's, and, 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 you know, unless someone is really, des, you know, is, you know, has the design to do harm to you, you can probably talk them down, um, and get out of that situation. And that's certainly preferable. 
Now, with physicality, I think one interesting observation I made, and I've got to like, preface this, I'm a firefighter. I'm just yeah. observationally having a discussion. Um, but the the law enforcement officers that I've had on the show who more often than not, not only you know are, are in great physical shape, but also usually are martial artists as well, um, report very little hands-on experience. Um, which again, with, with this amazing psychology kind of lens that you have, what is the value on that physicality in de-escalation? So, so I would say there's the critical component actually is not what someone looks like because, you know, you talked about, you know, you said you had a kind of small petite female case officer. Now she might be the, you know, the, uh, not only a total badass in terms of being physically in shape, but also mentally be really sharp. And so here's what I go to in terms of it's not you don't have to be, you know, six, three, you know, weighing weighing 220. The one thing that I learned later in my career and that the agency has been slow to embrace the special operations community is better. And I talked to tons of first responders on this is wellness training. I mean, wellness training for me is everything. And so, you know, so that's that's that's, you know, nutrition. Um, that's, you know, you know, sleep hygiene. That's obviously physical fitness. Uh, so there's, 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 you know, there's, there's a big movement now in terms of kind of meditation and yoga and journaling. And I sound all kind of new agey now when I say this, I believe in this deeply and, and, and the best officers, um, at CIA, I knew the best special operators from the, you know, Navy SEAL Green Beret community all practice this, um, because it, it gave them a sense of calm and confidence that others really didn't have. Um, and, and so, so kind of that, that wellness training uh, it's not only physical, it's also mental as well. So to me, that is kind of the key component in this. Uh, and, and, and look, and you could, you know, look, obviously, you know, martial arts is, you know, um, this is Eastern practices, not what they're, you know, they, they you know, you, you believe in, in terms of that spirituality and, and kind of, you know, mental, mental health and mental training. And so to me, the, the, the whole, the wellness, um, uh, kind of genre now is the future for, CIA for FBI for special operations certainly for firefighters and police officers with these incredible high stress jobs uh, and uh, and and you know that's you know I, I talk about it I write about it I mean I I really want to see that kind of progress because the opposite side and you probably know this from your line of work as well is you know things can go dark you know pretty pretty quickly with PTSD with all sorts of other you know with alcohol drug abuse <clears throat> because the job is just so incredibly stressful. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's, that's such an important, you know, point for us to hear. And I've heard it from SEALs and PJs and, you know, CIA, um, you know, case officers. And I mean, all this, this spectrum of, you know, high level professions and they're telling us the same thing. But then there's, there is resistance in, you know, in departments, whether it's from the administration, whether it's from the individuals or the unions. And, and, you know, I hope this message is slowly starting to seep in because, you know, the, the strength and conditioning and the mental clarity and, and, you know, a lot of these, these men and women, the, the environment that we have at the moment sets them up for failure, not success. I mean, Absolutely. they are sleep de- de- deprived. So I'm hoping that we can get that message through that we, as with, you know, other elite agencies, our professions need to create an environment for for excellence rather than to break Absolutely. our people down. No, there, there's no doubt about that. And I and and um, you know, again, the 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 negative aspect or, or the you know or the result of not doing this is pretty severe um, in terms of you know of you know uh, you know some, you know serious PTSD and and other kind of you know alcohol abuse and and frankly suicide. And so you know, one of the things that I've really you know, it's interesting in, 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 you know, my, in my retirement, I've really, 
you know, uh, uh, gotten involved in in dealing with some kind of unique individuals who are helping, you know, kind of prevent, treat, you know, diagnose and 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 really using even technology to to you know uh, to to kind of counter the the problem of veteran suicide. Um, you know, whether it's using a, a, a mobile app that is anonymous that that veterans uh, or you know active duty military or intelligence personnel can use to talk to a you know a mental health provider. I mean, this would be fantastic for. For law enforcement or, uh, uh, or or first responders or firefighters as well, because there's a stigma in this. And one of the things that I hated seeing was um, individuals who I knew needed help just and they wouldn't go get it because they thought, hey, I'm going to lose my security clearance. Or, you know, if I take a knee because, you know, you know, something's going on in my head, if you don't have a visible wound. You know, you know, my teammates are not going to not going to accept me. I mean, that's so bad. But you see that stigma all over kind of our, you know. Our, our community and, you know, uh, uh, in, in intelligence, special operations, and certainly in, in for this first responder community, too. That stigma is something we got to got to fight against. Absolutely. Well, speaking of things that we see, and a question that I like to ask everyone who's been deployed, you know, in, into an area of combat. Um, and I always preface this the same way. We get a very polarizing view of war. You know, right. as civilians, as people that were never over there, and one is very anti-war. You know, they're they're all baby killers, and the other one is very pro-war. You know, kill them all, let God sort them out. But then you have the human beings, the men and women that are sent often at a very young age to go, you know, fight for our country. And I don't feel like their voices are ever really heard. So what I like to ask is what is is two questions. The first one is, regardless of the politics behind the deployment. Was there a, you know, a moment as you progressed in your career, you know, wherever you found yourself, where you saw firsthand some of these atrocities and you realized that, you know, aside from politics, you know, these are people that we, we definitely need to, to take care of because they're terrorizing their own people. They're a threat to us. But you actually you know, witnessed with your own eyes. Oh, sure. So, I mean, there's I mean, I've, I've very definitive kind of accounts of this. You know, when I when I went to Iraq the first time. Um, in late 2002, you know, so we had, we had teams up in Kurdistan in Northern Iraq. This is before the war, before the invasion. Um, and, and so we were living with the Kurds and just before the invasion, I was, because I, there was some, there were some reasons uh, behind it. I was put on, uh, as the case officer, kind of assigned to Naval Special Warfare, the Navy SEAL, uh, uh, Navy, Navy SEAL teams to go in for the high value target hunt into Baghdad. So, you know, this is a wild couple months where, you know, I, you know, I went in on the infill and the infiltration with, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, with the SEALs and we're kind of running every night and we're catching high value targets. But along the way, you know, there's there's a war going on. And so, um, you know, I saw, you know, <clears throat> you know, things I hadn't seen before, which is kind of, you know, not only dead bodies, but disemboweled. I mean, it's terrible, you know, brains oozing out and people sliced in half and just repeated um, you know, uh, uh, exposure to this. And so we were, we were catching high value targets. I don't think in, in, in all the operations we did, a shot was ever fired, but it didn't matter because we, because I saw all this and I didn't think anything of it. And, you know, I went six weeks without a shower. You're going, you know, you're going nonstop. And I come back home and I start getting, uh, clearly I had PTSD and I started, I had this, I started getting nightmares, um, and, and seeing all this stuff, you know, and, and I talk, actually, I talk about this in the book because one of the things that, <clears throat> one of the senior officers, he was our, it was our chief of station. Um, he knew, and we had all gotten back, you know, the teams had all gotten back, uh, you know, by mid 2003 to the States. I was gone for about half a year. And, and my wife is, is freaking me out at this point because, you know, she thinks I'm going to, um, something bad's going to, I'm waking up in the middle of the night, sweating, screaming, it was bad. Um, of course the agency, when they screened me coming home, you know, I had some psychologists, how you doing? I'm fine. Okay. 
off you go. So zero effort at, you know, at really kind of identifying any problems. But my but my old boss, uh, you know, he had a house in Cape Cod, in Massachusetts, and he brought the whole team together. So for two weeks, kind of all got back together. We brought our families and just miraculously, somehow all these kind of crazy nightmares, you know, went away for me. But it was really jarring um, because I didn't realize it at the time. And then I and then I, you know, then I and I come back and something's really wrong. And so, you know, that that to me, you know, there's there's and this, you know, I, I did a lot of time in, in war zones. And then later on, I was a base chief in Afghanistan for a year. Um, and saw a lot of bad stuff. And so, you know, if it's, it's, you know, if you, if you, you know, right now I, I'm being treated for a, a traumatic brain injury at, at Walter Reed. Um, uh, and, and when you talk to the psychologist there and the psychiatrist, you know, and, and I'll say, I'm feeling great today. We don't have to talk. And they're like, we got about a year of talking together. Um, because of all the stuff that you experienced over the years. And it's just, it's one of those jobs. And so I think yeah, I would, I would kind of conclude this segment with, Look, my life, I spent a lot of time with special operations forces and intelligence forces. They're, everyone is broken after 20 years. So what I'm talking to you about is is endemic in the, in the spec ops community. Everybody is, is screwed up in some fashion. And I would posit the same thing, you know, very similar in terms of first responders. And clearly with the events of last summer and what happened with police officers, this is not a political statement. But if you're if you're in the Seattle PD every night, you're on the street or in Portland. You know, you know, there's going to be there's a psychological effect on this that you, that is that, that I don't care how tough you are. You know, I was I was in Afghanistan. I was, you know, I'm short guy. I'm five, eight, but I was 220. I was benching 350 pounds. I thought I was the baddest dude of all time. You know, coming back, you know, it, it, when, when you're when there's stuff going on in your head, it's a little bit different. And so I think that this is a, it is a really serious issue about things we, we collectively have been exposed to over the years that you might not think at the time is harming you. But it's, it's back there in your head somewhere and, and you got to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. It was a very powerful perspective. Thank you. And I think one huge positive is, like you said, when your boss brought you back, that sounds like a great, you know, decompression, those two weeks, yeah. especially for your your profession. Because as I mentioned, if, if you have a cohesive firehouse, we have that inbuilt, you know, group. And if you have a non-cohesive firehouse, then it's an absolute disaster. But, um, you know, when you're all scattered around the planet, it seems like it's very important that you congregate again and can decompress the same way you did that time. Right. I, I would imagine for you, you know, or, or for, you know, for firefighters, then, and I'm going to get this, I'm going to box this totally, but the nights you're sleeping at the firehouse, there's a comfort there when you're all together. It's actually harder when you're not. Um, when you're not there with other people who you can relate to. And so whether you're on vacation, whether you're home for a couple nights a week, if you're not on shift or like, you know, with me when I'm coming back and all of a sudden I'm not with, you know, with people who I've gone through these experiences with that, that's when it can be difficult because they really can't relate um, to what happened. Now, conversely, the other side of that, that question, um, moments of humanity, people forget that these conflicts are occurring in yeah. people's country it's not the entire nation at war it's, it's you know some some extremists in a country right. um what were kind of moments of humanity compassion that stuck out to you in some of these war zones oh what a, what a great question I, I i tell a story in the book um and it's based on a principle which i call the glue guy or the glue gal and, and the glue guy or the glue gal is is to me and you have it in the firehouse you have it in in certainly in intelligence special operations but it's that indispensable member of the team who, you know, is not at the tip of the spear, who doesn't get the glory. Hey, maybe if you're, you know, it, it, it's, it's, the, it's not the firefighter who pulled a kid out of a, a burning house. Maybe it's the dispatcher. Maybe it's, maybe it's the, you know, I, and I don't know what you all call them, the, the logisticians, or, or there are people who kind of get your, you make sure your equipment's all clean, um, uh, or order, or, or support personnel. But so I tell the story in the, in the book about when I was, I was a base chief in, in, in Eastern Afghanistan, 
and we had, you know, we had medics, we, you know, they're, they're, they're not docs, they're not doctors, they're really physician assistants, PAs, but we call them doc. And one of the most amazing times that I saw there is, you know, one day we're sitting just around regular thing and I get a call over the radio that there's, there's been some kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, casualty that, that happened outside the base. My first worry is it's one of our guys or gals. It wasn't, it was a young Afghan boy who stepped on a landmine and, you know, again, Afghanistan's a place rife with old Soviet era landmines from kind of the, 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 the Soviet invasion, you know, decades ago. But, you know, this, this young kid, you know, blew half his leg off and he's bleeding out right there. And our medics, um, you know, went and they saved it. And I watched them save his life. Now, this has nothing to do with with our role, which is, you know, a frontline intelligence collection base, you know, a paramilitary base where we're supposed to collect intelligence to, to frankly kill Al Qaeda and, Tal- and, and Taliban members. And that's what we did. This is totally something separate even to the point where I call in a U.S. military helicopter and it's a little sketchy, you know, we don't, you know, you know, so this is, so we're in a remote base. I'm calling in, you know, a, a medevac helicopter. They're usually they're supposed to be for Americans or our Afghan, you know, military partners. This is a 10 year old kid, but you know, we kind of made the case. And so ultimately I watched these, you know, the, these medics we had, you know, save this young boy's life. And it was an amazing experience. And, you know, I was told, you know, of course, and, and I have a 10 year, I, at the time I had a 10 year old back home. So I'm thinking of that right away. And and so, you know, we, we saved that kid's life. And that was a really amazing experience. And, you know, it's not written about you don't see it. You know, there's no cable that goes back home. There's no kudos. There's not there's nothing that high value target was taken out in the battlefield. This is just something we did. But I was so proud of the team after that. And I, you know, I had some I'm sure, I, you know, I, I tell in the book, I, you know, I got everyone together around the fire pit and I gave kind of some kind of hokey speech and I was all you know teary about it. Um, and they all probably kind of were like, oh, God, here goes the boss again. <laughs> But ultimately, what an amazing moment, you know, because that was that humane moment that, hey, you know, we are there to try to, um, you know, protect America from from, you know, the, the terrorist threat that was emanating from Afghanistan. But it is a country of civilians. Uh, and so we ended up helping one young kid. And that was uh, that was pretty special. No, and that's that's so great to hear stories like that because you know obviously they happen, but that's not what's reported, like you said. And we get this very you know divided perspective, and yet we've got all these incredible, you know, um, acts of heroism, whether it's from our own people, whether it's from the the allied forces, and you know it's important that we hear this. And a cool part of that story too is that the intelligence officer. He was a CIA case officer before he joined the CIA. He was a uh, uh, he was he was in special forces for a while. <clears throat> a, a medic there. Then he was a nurse at a at an emergency room in Baltimore. So he was a he knew trauma medicine. And so so when he jumped in when this happened, it was a, it was really easy for him to kind of kind of jump in and uh, and help. But he was I mean so he was a first responder before, so he knew what to do. And I I was in awe that day watching watching them save this kid. Beautiful. Well, we, as we said before, you know that there's a there's a jaded you know view of the CIA. You know we hear things like you know Benghazi and all these all these incidents but there's never anything positive about it we're never really educated on what the men and the women cia do you know and and what they're they're preventing so without obviously being specific because i understand confidentiality in general what are some of the 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 things that that's happening in the cia and what are some of the the success stories because of your colleagues work sure so so i think that you know overall um, you know, so much of, of the last 20 years has been defined in the, you know, the post 9-11 period. So first and foremost, we were not attacked again on the homeland. <clears throat> and now there could be huge debates on what the CIA did. You know, there's obviously debates on enhanced interrogation techniques, and we won't get into that. Um, although my kid did ask me once, my little kid is like, hey, dad, do we torture people? And I was like, stop. No. Um, but but ultimately, that's that's not what the CIA should be remembered for. Ultimately, it's it's, you know, our men and women deployed overseas in the Middle East. 
really prevented another 9-11 style attack because, you know, Al-Qaeda was not done. Um, you know, <clears throat> and even even into the time period 2010 to 2014, there was an offshoot Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And if you recall back then, there were all these plots against U.S. civilian airliners. So so there were people really gunning for us. And, um, you know, there would have been hundreds, if not thousands of Americans killed if, if not for the efforts of the CIA. So, you know, we were all really proud of that. But you're not always going to get a lot of credit for it. And then sometimes, um, uh, you know, there's there's criticisms as well. So, you know. On a, on a personal level, I, I love that there's a story in the book <clears throat> that I tell that we had we were going after a, a, a high value target in eastern Afghanistan. And this individual was he was a senior, maybe a mid-level Taliban member, but he was still trying to kill, you know, U.S. forces. But he had also been responsible for killing two American, it's two CIA officers um, several years earlier. <coughs> and we went and we did kind of it, it was it was it took months of planning um, where we recruited agents, you know, it was, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I can't even remember if it was Afghans or Pak or Pakistanis, but to, to put this individual on the X to spot this individual. And eventually he met his demise, um, uh, you know, in, a, in an airstrike. And so, you know, we took someone off the battlefield who was responsible for killing Americans and who was certainly wanted to kill more. But that night, as we sat around the fire pit, we got an idea because some of my team knew one of the officers who was killed, knew the widow back in Fort Bragg. And so, you know, this is totally unauthorized and I tell the story now, but, you know, I, my book was cleared by the CIA, so I guess they don't care all that much. But but we called this officer's widow in Fort Bragg and just we wanted to let her know that we avenged her husband's death. And so that's just, a, you know, and so, you know, we all felt felt really good that day for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, we, you know, the CIA doesn't go about and the U.S. military doesn't go about killing people for revenge. This individual was trying to kill more Americans, but we felt pretty good that we did avenge. Um, the death of, uh, of two of our officers. And it also sends a really good message to the CIA workforce is like, you know, we're put in harm's way. If something's going to something happens to you, we know that no one in our organization is ever going to forget. Uh, and so that was a, that was a really neat moment. And, you know, that's, it's a kind of really small success that, that I can that, that I can talk about, but was something that I'll never forget. Beautiful. Well, another, I guess, resurgence that, that makes people think that, you know, they're a lot more effective than they are is, is some of these attacks that we see domestically, which, you know, appear to a sensible pair of eyes to be, you know, lone wolf psychopaths, basically. And whether it's the Boston bombings, whether it's, you know, Pulse, whether it's all these things we've seen in, in England, um, through, again, through the intelligence lens, you know, what are we seeing there and why are we seeing you know, that, that kind of alignment with some of their values. So, so I think that, you know, what you bring up is, is kind of the biggest challenge for the intelligence community now. So, you know, a, a mass casualty event like 9-11 certainly can happen again, and, and we have to do everything to prevent it, but it's much harder to prevent the lone wolf attack. So th these individuals are certainly motivated, probably, you know, at, at times, you know, inspired and recruited even online. Um, by, you know, by uh, Al Qaeda or, or the Taliban or ISIS. Um, and they're recruited to do things in their home countries. And that's much harder um, to, uh, to prevent because, you know, uh, you know, you know and, and God, I look back to the time in, 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 in the UK and kind of the wave of terrorism that swept through there. That was really terrifying. Uh, but same thing in France as well. Uh, and so and then and then you do have kind of the, the lone wolf attacks here. So that's the hardest thing for, for you know, the U.S. intelligence community and law enforcement, because these are these are groups who are inspired online. And and uh, and, and, you know, you, the, the, the best analogy kind of we make, it's the irony is that, you know, not not the most it's a popular sport. My son is a you know, is a giant Liverpool fan. So my son loves the English Premier League. Um, but 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 the football or the soccer analogy is really important that we use in the intelligence community because 
you know, you know, uh, uh, we we can't allow even a single goal. Um, you know, so your your goalie has to be perfect, and that's really hard. Uh, you know, and so so you know, so ultimately, it's a uh, it's you know, and, and if one of those gets through, that's that's a tragedy. Um, and and if you think about it, you know, whether I don't know, Liverpool won it last year. Who won it this year? Man City. Uh, you're uh, asking the wrong person. <laughs> okay. I'm watching, watching England during the Euro 2020, but that's, the international games are usually the only ones I watch. But but ultimately, you know, you, you know, you have to be perfect. That's hard. That's a that's a hard standard to live up to. Now, with with the you know what we're seeing with with these attacks, to me again, the layman's eyes, what I'm seeing is is mental ill health. Is there when you analyze some of these attacks, is there that element almost the same as a school shooter with the background of some of these people? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great point. So I think, you know, it's, it's sometimes, you, you know, uh, a terrorist group will take advantage of someone. So so you got to remember, someone who's going to conduct this lone wolf attack is, is, is probably going to be in some in, in, in essence, you know, uh, is 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 going to be committing suicide. <clears throat> so, so, you know, so they're recruiting them uh, to do something, which is, you know, is something that kind of goes against the grain of human nature in terms of their actual you know, you know, mental health challenges. I haven't seen that, in, you know, you know, uh, specifically, but there's a huge amount of data on, on, you know, on, on how suicide bombers are recruited, because that, that to me is, is something that's, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, and the motivation to do something where, you know, you're, you know, you're going to take your own life for a cause, you know, there, there certainly is a mental health aspect to that. Um, cause that just goes against human nature entirely. Well, another question on the funding side, and this is something that I've, you know, I, I stumbled over a few years ago. My mum and brother uh, moved to Portugal, and a lot of people listen to this podcast have heard the story, and I apologize, but um, they, Portugal, back in the beginning of this millennia, decriminalized addiction, not drug smelling, no, it's smelling, drug smuggling or selling, but, you know, the addicts. And really cut the head off the snake of the illicit drug trade in Portugal. The same thing happened in, in uh, Switzerland and then I forget which of the, I think it's Central American countries as well. Um, but then, you know, when I start exploring that, I sat down with the guy that actually did that in Portugal, um, interview people like Johan Hari. You start to realize that so, so much power is given to the underworld when we have prohibition. As as this show has progressed, more and more people from the military special operations have said that they witnessed the illicit drug trade feeding terrorism, you know, funding terrorism. So through that lens, obviously, my opinion is I'm I think that prohibition of, of drugs is an, you know, an epic failure. And I, and I wish that we would change it. But through your lens, through through the funding and organization of, you know, some of the, the horrendous things that you've seen. Which, you know, how much of that is actually funded by the illicit drug trade? Well, I, I think, you know, some of it clearly in Afghanistan, you know, I mean, you know, the, the you know, the, you know, drugs dominate the economy there. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, it was always it, it was the United States tried for 20 years to kind of break that, um, you know, reliance. But you, you can't. Um, and so, you know, all of our Afghan partners had some type of, of you know, role in, in, in the illicit drug trade. So that was extremely difficult. There's also reports of, you know, how, you know, Hezbollah, for example, is involved. Uh, as well in the in the illicit drug trade. Ultimately, for me, it was not as you know it's it's not the, the, the kind of the key fundraising mechanism. I mean, I think when you take a look at Al Qaeda you know, in particular, um, that was you know wealthy you know Sunni Arabs in in, in the Gulf um, who were extremists in their ideology. They're the ones who really fueled this um, and and kind of funded uh, 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 you know Al Qaeda, which was you know the the most lethal terrorist group you know certainly in our generation. Um, but but make no mistake that that you know terrorist groups will take advantage of that. Kind of flipping it a little though is that <clears throat> in 
terms of, you know, my view and my attitudes, I mean, I've changed dramatically um, because I've had some health issues too. Like I'm a, I, not only am I a proponent of, you know, medical marijuana, I got a stash of gummy bears in the back here prescribed by Walter Reed's, uh, you know, National Military Medical Center. So that, that's, this is the leading U.S. military center to treat individuals, PTSD and TBI who are absolutely advocating, um, uh, you know, you know, legal marijuana. Um, and they're even at the forefront in terms of kind of the use of psychedelics to assist. Um, I had a, a really good friend of mine is a D is, is a senior DEA agent and I, I hadn't seen him for a while. Um, and we had lunch the other day and I, I kind of tiptoed around this. I was like, I got a stash of gummies in my house. Do you care about that? He's like, no. And, you know, and he was saying like the decriminalization of marijuana would make life amazingly easier. Um, and so, you know, I think my, my view has changed that the view of kind of the special operations intelligence community, um, has changed a lot, mainly because of treatment issues. Um, you know, <clears throat> I mean, you're more involved with kind of uh, first responder and law enforcement. So that's more of kind of a societal thing, um, you know, and, and how we kind of, you know, wean America off on on drugs. I mean, the opioid crisis obviously is is, is awful what's happened in the United States. But but in terms of decriminalization, I think, you know, I'm all for it. And, and, and you know, all you got to do is look at kind of the, the broken people I know from my world, look at NFL players who really can't exist without kind of smoking weed on Monday morning after a Sunday game. They cannot. Uh, and, and to me, you know, marijuana is not a gateway drug. I've talked to every doctor when you have the U S military telling us kind of on the side where people treating people, it's not a gateway drug. You're fine. And you know what? We'd rather have you take a couple gummies and go to bed rather than have four scotches, not even close. Um, so that's kind of my view uh, on that. Beautiful. Well, I mean, I appreciate it. Obviously first responders, we have a different lens, you know, especially as paramedics, I'm a firefighter and a paramedic as well. You know, we see the overdoses, we see, you know, all the violent crime over the illicit drug trade and, and by legalizing it and putting it in the hands of the medical community and making it a mental health issue, yep. then you, 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 it's supply and demand. You just took away demand. So to me, right. it seems like simple economics. Of course, there would be some complexities to it, but the more people from all these communities that we respect that, that tell stories like you just did, I think the more it takes away the stigma of that because I just had a, a seal, Nick Norris, who's, who's part of the C4 Foundation, and they use Ibogaine. But the SEALs have to go to a foreign country to get treatment for what they did for this country, you know, and that, that absolutely needs to change. Yeah, I agree, 100%. Brilliant. Well, one of your fellow CIA case managers, I'm assuming, um, who then I think he became a PJ, if I got that right, uh, Nick McKinley, um, has a organization called Deliver Fund. And he, through his lens, through CIA, was, was seeing the human trafficking. So he created this nonprofit to empower local law enforcement agencies. Just staying on this, and then we'll transition, obviously, to, to your, your leaving the CIA and then writing the book. But what about that? That's something that is kind of becomes a buzzword sometimes with the trafficking element. Did you, did you see or were you exposed to that side of uh, I, I, the I underworld? Really, I, was, I, was, I was involved in the Middle East um, for, you know, for most of my time, so I was not. Um, uh, and, and, you know, that's not to say that that certainly didn't happen. Um, and, and I don't know if these individuals had, you know, were working more in, in Europe or Asia, but, uh, you know, in my time in, in the Middle East, you know, that's not, not something that we kind of came across. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm not, not as familiar with that. Okay. Beautiful. Um, well with, with your journey, firstly, what kept you in the CIA for so long? Ah, well, well you know, clearly the sense of mission. Um, and so, you know, I, I still am. You know, the sucker that when, you know, I was I was overseas and I'd walk down the street and we were in, you know, a Middle Eastern country and perhaps it wasn't as friendly to the United States and I'd see the silhouette of the American flag. You know, I'd still get motivated, 
not only that I was a part of, of the U.S. mission in that country, but I also knew that people in that country who had a very oppressive government were also looking at that flag. And, and you know, I still believe that, you know, despite all the troubles we've had in the United States, um, that, you know, America can still be that kind of shining city on the hill. Um, because I, I lived in so many kind of nasty, bad, autocratic countries. Um, you know, it's all relative, frankly. And so, you know, America can still have, you know, be the kind of, you know, have that have that kind of the, those ideals of, of freedom and democracy that others really strive for. And look, it's, you know, it's the sense of mission. You know, it's, it's not a dull job. That's for sure. You know, I don't think I ever went to work, um, you know, without a kind of a little, you know, hitch in my in my step. Um, and, and, and ultimately, it's that because the American people kind of depend on us to be standing on, on the ramparts. I mean, you know, so so you have a whole bunch of kind of type A folks. Um, and I, I'd be lying if I said that, you know, you, you know, you don't get a charge from that uh, of knowing that you are kind of unique and amongst the kind of an elite group. And 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 look, I mean, my my friends, in the CIA will, will watch this and kind of roll their eyes because internally we also fight like cats and dogs and it's super competitive and it's, you know, everyone's pushing for promotions and it can be kind of a zero sum game sometime. But when push comes to shove, you know, we are that, you know, that that's you know, the nation's first line of defense, which is intelligence. Um, and I don't care, you know, every president who comes into office, I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Well, I'm not sure President Trump, he might be an anomaly because he really didn't love the intelligence community, but, <laughs> but people, but, but people from both sides of the aisle really do appreciate what the CIA, um, you know, does in terms of keeping America, uh, uh, safe. And so, you know, I stayed there for, for as long as I could. And then I got, you know, I, I had to, I had to retire for kind of, for medical reasons. I came across some, some nasty things that happened to me and, and ultimately had to kind of hang up the cleats. Well, so talking about that, this is another area that I really like to explore. Um, there are so many men and women that when they transition out of one of the, you know, the professions that, that you're in or I'm in, um, they struggle because they've identified as being the SEAL, the firefighter, the cop. Um, and, you know, some have, have paved the way and they transition into another tribe and some find themselves, you know, alone and, and struggling for a while. What was your transition like? So, so the biggest thing was writing the book. Um, and it was really kind of a therapeutic and cathartic experience. You know, again, I had, a, I had a, I suffered a, a traumatic brain injury, and so I was I had some healthcare issues. But but writing the book was good because for you know I I'm so I'm good at you know you know we'll do this for for you know an hour an hour and a half or so, and I'll be tired afterwards. So I can't do an eight hour day. But but writing a book is I would write in the morning for two hours, so that, that was fine. Um, but I also I I it was I I found like that I was a, that, that that I'm a good writer. I enjoyed doing it. Um, you know, again, the agency cleared these great operational stories, and I just wanted to tell the story of not myself, but of what CIA was like, and then kind of these leadership principles. I wanted to tell it kind of to the world, and so I really enjoyed that. So it gave me a sense of purpose. So you know, um, and and fact of the matter in the publishing is, industry is so you know, I came up with this idea. You get an outline, you know, you, you you pitch it to a publisher, and then they give you a really big advance. So it's not like like you're you're like, all right, I'm on the hook for doing this. So I had a sense of purpose every day, um, and I think some people sometimes don't. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's something that uh, that I, you know, I, I really enjoyed that process. And and you know, and, and now, as I go out and I'm on TV and I in the media and I talk about the book and I think it's doing well, um, you know, I, I'm getting not not getting a kick out of it. But there's some satisfaction because I think I'm just telling a story that hadn't been told about what CIA was about. But you know, there's and, and then and then the other point too is that I got into the whole wellness you know, thing, um, and really pushing wellness for the kind of the, the intelligence community and, and special operations. That was really meaningful to me. Um, and so, you know, you find things, you know, to do in, in life. I don't miss the agency. I don't miss going to work. Um, uh, and because I got to be too senior to have fun, 
you know, the, the most fun is a line street case officer where you're out, you know, trying to recruit agents or handling agents. That's a lot. That was long in the past for me. I was, I was, I was doing budgets and personnel. And so, you know, I was in charge. So the, the, the last fancy title I had, was, I was in charge of all clandestine operations in Europe and Eurasia. That's from Dublin to the farthest time zones in Russia. It sounds really sexy, really was a giant personnel issue, a headache, you know? So we have officers who need help here or, you know, this station chief's being a jerk or the ambassador, you know, is having problems here. And so, or, you know, there, it's just, it, it was all kind of personnel issues. It, 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 it was a very kind of fancy title. My job as a, as, a, as a line case officer was so much more fun. So you get into upper management and your, your fun ends. <laughs> well, I, I can relate. I stayed at the firefighter the whole 14 years and, uh, you know, I had this yeah. plan to promote. And every time it came to being eligible, I was like, yeah, nah, I'm good. No, <laughs> so get it because, because you're actually, so you're helping people, you know, and so, and, but there's, you know, there's and the, the problem with, with, with a lot of these organizations is, People define success in terms of the promotion, um, and 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 only when they're at the when they retire and they're like, okay, so I retired from the senior intelligence service at a level of the equivalent of a four-star general. It sounds really exciting. I really didn't have fun in my job the last couple of years at all, uh, and and so all the stuff that I talk about, all the stuff in the book, is all from you know 2010 and before and, pr- and prior to that, um, you know 2010 to 2000 or maybe 2012. Uh, uh, so, you know, the last couple of years was a lot of budget, a lot of meetings, um, wearing, you know, wearing a, I, 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 you know, wear my suit to work. I actually gave away all my, I don't own a suit anymore. I have a sport jacket, you know, so I got called down to the white house the other day for a meeting. I wore jeans, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. I can relate. I call it a monkey suit. I can't stand wearing it. <laughs> Um, even, even the guy, I actually am clean shaven at the moment because I just had a haircut, but usually yeah, I've got stubble all the time because we're not allowed to have stubble for, you know, all those decades. Um, well, one, one just tangent again, cause you reminded me as a young man, I grew up next to an MOD base, military defense in, in England. And it was when the IRA were terrorizing the mainland and to the point where we had to sweep under our car because we were right next to this base to make sure that we weren't going to get blown up, which is a fun thing for an eight year old to have to do. Um, so, you know, I I watched it seemed to be interestingly around when the US became aware of Al Qaeda, whether it was the bombing of the coal and then obviously 9-11. All of a sudden, you know, that that organization lose their steam and I'm assuming their funding and, and, and you know, luckily there there'd be peace treaties. I've heard rumblings of a, a resurgence again. Just in Ireland, not not talking about size or anything, but you know that's where I think of terrorism originally. You know, and I was exposed to it as a kid. So, what have you what have you witnessed the last few decades with with that kind of whole environment and conflict? In terms of in terms of Northern Ireland and the Irish conflict, yes. Or, or, so so you know it, it's interesting you say that because that's something I never worked on, and there was a small it's a small niche effort at the agency, obviously working with our British partners. Um, uh, on this, but it was never something that, that, and this is going to sound terrible, but it did, it, you know, it wasn't something that affected Americans, the United States as much. And so, you know, I, I joined the agency in 93. Um, and then by the later years of, of the Clinton administration with the coal and other things. So, you know, terrorism became a problem, but we weren't looking at, 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 at Northern Ireland or the IRA. What's interesting to me now in retirement is, and it's fascinating because I, I, you know, I've had the ability and I, I can't remember the names, but I've read a lot about, British intelligence efforts against the IRA, and it's completely fascinating to me because their ability to infiltrate groups, um, and 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 I think as Americans, you don't understand. We didn't understand the fear um, that that you know that that uh, I mean, Lord Mountbatten was killed. I mean, so you know, there's there's seminal events in British history um, that have to do with uh, with you know with the troubles with 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 terrorism. Um, 
but it's but it's it's not something that I worked on. And and frankly, you know, again, by the time I I was I was actually working with British intelligence because you know we all have over the years. It was not you know that was that even was not on their radar screen as the most you know most critical threat. It was Al Qaeda. It was the London bombings. It was you know. Um, you know, uh, you know, UK deployments to to Iraq or or Afghanistan, um, but there's so much really interesting history uh, in terms of even the little niche that I'm interested in. You know, agent operations, how the British infiltrated and recruited spies inside the IRA. It's it's fascinating to me, and and uh, you know, it's something that I've I've started really kind of jumping into. Yeah, it was just interesting because I remember being younger, and, and I don't think I misquoted Mickey Rourke. I think did a, a film about that whole you know, yeah. story and ended up from what I was, you know, this is this is a, a news report that supposedly donated money from the film to the IRA, you know, and then we had the coal and 9-11 all of a sudden, you know, I think, as you said, Americans understand what terrorism is because at those times they were blowing up women and children. It wasn't, you know, yes, they were targeting military, you know, um, military buildings, but also a lot of civilians on the mainland. So, you know, it was sickening being British to then hear this American actor saying he's going to give money to these terrorists. That is sickening. Look, I, I, I always heard rumblings through the years that there was, you know, uh, uh, and I don't know if it's true or not. And, and you know, this is this is only kind of word of mouth and I'll get this wrong. But that, you know, there was, you know, there, there, there was there was British concern and even operational activity, you know, you know, for example, you know, in, in New England, Boston, the Boston area, because they were worried about IRA fundraising, you know, uh, in the United States. And I'm sure they were working with the FBI on this as well. Um, but you know, there, you know, there, there is that, that kind of, you know, and it, I, I do think it's, it's sickening, but there is that kind of lore that still kind of exists, um, that, you know, that the IRA were, were kind of freedom fighters, but they were not at all. Um, and, and what they were doing is, was, you know, was atrocious. And, um, you know, I, I'm going to get this totally wrong as well because, but, but I have been, you know, trying to follow press accounts of, okay, so what does Brexit mean now? You know, you know, you know, how does this and, and are, is, you know, what does this mean for Ireland? And are the, you know, are all the all the agreements going to unravel because of this? Um, uh, but that's, you know, it's a uh, it's a it's there's there there definitely is even amongst my kind of Irish friends in the United States, to me, a little too much kind of nostalgia for the IRA, something I, I don't like, because, again, I worked tourism for all these years. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just it is what it is. Yeah. Well, to, just to put the you know the the shoe on the other foot for a moment, I totally agree as well that you know what the British did during the the potato famine was awful. You know what my forefathers have done in some of these countries is horrendous. But also, I find it weird that these two tiny rocks in the middle of the ocean that were even divided in the first place. You know, I mean, I I don't see myself as English. I see myself as a dude that lives on those or used to live on those two rocks and i all i think of them all as my people so the fact that you know ireland's cut in half and then you have protestant and catholic and you know there's so many divisions when we should be united as just one you know collective people that have you know got thousands and thousands of years of history together absolutely i agree Beautiful. All right. Well, then, so give me an overview of the book, and I want to pull out a couple of leadership principles. As, as we said before, I don't want to, you know, pull them out, you know, all, no, and then no, people no. like, oh, I, I need I'm to buy the book now. <laughs> this conversation is wonderful because we're all over the place. I love it. <laughs> well, that's my brain. <laughs> I'm like talking points and stuff like that. No, this has been really fun. No, so so why did I write the book? So so one of the things at the end of my career, I realized I was, and this, you know, whether good or bad, I was like, hey, you know what? I turned into a good leader. I really wasn't for a long time. But I turned into a really good leader at the end of my career, and 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 I, and I was asking myself why. But it was the recognition that in times of ambiguity, I was really calm, and so so that's why I came up with this kind of title, "Clarity in Crisis," 
Um, because it's the ability when, when one has lack of situational awareness, when there is this ambiguity, when, you know, when, and it sounds dramatic, when others want to flee, you know, you're, you're in your kind of, that's your calm, you're in your happy place. And, and I always kind of talked about that, you know, that, that period of gray. Um, uh, and, and so, and then I kind of sat back and I said, you know, why am I like this? That I'm okay right now. Everybody is nervous about a certain situation. Um, whether it's an operation, whether maybe it's a foreign policy crisis, maybe something happening, um, uh, you know, uh, in the, uh, you know, in, in, in a certain region of, of a country that we care about. But, but, you know, I had that, I had that, you know, that I didn't have any fear. I was like, all right, let, you know, send me, send my team. We'll be good right here. Um, when others don't want to be there. And so, so I came up with it with kind of core principles and look, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get my MBA from Harvard, everything, everything I did. And I talk about in the book has to do with kind of, you know, you know, having been learned in the streets of the third world in the middle East, mostly. Um, uh, and, and, and most of it's based on, and it's a big theme in the book. It's based on failure. So I failed a tremendous amount. You know, you face a ton of adversity. I have this incredible, I'm this kind of, you know, as you see, I'm talking here, I'm, I'm an outgoing, you know, character, but I also have a huge dose of humility because of some of the really, you know, times I got kicked in the face. Um, uh, but I came up with these principles on how to kind of, how to, how to ultimately lead and build teams so that you can have this kind of clarity, you know, uh, 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 you know, in, in times of crisis and where, where, you know, where people just don't have fear and you live in that. I love the state. I love the, the phrase that this is my happy place. It's a time of gray. You know, I mean, you can think of COVID, you know, the, the COVID pandemic, you know, the companies or organizations that manage through this, you know, we're able to deal with this incredibly ambiguous and, and, and really difficult time. And so I came up with nine principles and, and they build on each other. Um, and, it, and, it, and it's, you know, and I talked about one already, you know, the glue guy and the glue gal. That's the indispensable member of your team. And, and just to elaborate on that, it, that's so. So not only do you identify them, you have to celebrate them. And, you know, a perfect example is so we conclude an operation somewhere, you know, overseas. And again, you maybe you had the case officer who recruited an agent who, who obtained intelligence that helped the United States president, you know, make a really important foreign policy decision. That case officer is going to be celebrated. It's going to get an exceptional performance award. You know, but what about everybody behind the scenes? And so what I would do would be to make sure I identify those people. So whether, when there was an award ceremony, when there's something where people are getting praised, you, you actually bring everybody together. Perfect example. You know, my stepbrother is an ER doc, uh, an emergency room doc in Brooklyn. I talked about this, you know, this, this principle with him for, for hours as I was writing the book. He's like, well, of course, it's the nurses. You know, so we can't save someone. If, so, if there's trauma medicine, someone needs, needs emergency surgery, the nurses are going to be, that's, that's the glue gal. So, so that's one principle, you know, identifying someone like that. Um, boy, there's, there's nine of them all together. Another one that, that I love talking about, I call it win an Oscar. Um, and that's the ability of an individual, a team leader, uh, to under times of stress, when there's that, that gray, when there's that, you know, that time of ambiguity, everyone's looking at you, you know, you know, you, you portray a sense of calm. And, and I say that's important. And it's, and you can also be, you can also be honest with your team. You can be like, you know, Hey y'all, like this is, this is tough right now, but we got this. Or like, you know, and so, so you can be empathetic. You can, you can be honest, but you, you, you portray a sense of calm, which is absolutely critical. And I, and I tell a great story in the book. I, again, it was when I was a base chief in Afghanistan, I went out every once in a while, I'd go out and on patrol, you know, kind of with the boys. Now I'm the base chief. They don't want to get me killed and I'm getting all psyched and getting all, you know, gunned up and I'm going to go in our tactical gear. We're going after 36 hours. They probably planned the route in advance. Like, Hey, let's just drive them around like over and over. They'll fall asleep <laughs> in the back. But, but we're out for 36 hours. I, you know, and we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, this is along the Pac-Afghan border. There was no firefights. We, one time we came back, I was exhausted. 
ordinarily, so I ran a team of about 20 Americans, you know, in the tip of the spear. So we'd eat together every night. You know, we'd have a beer together at the fire pit every night. We watch movies every night. Everything was kind of this collective team. But in this case, I was tired and I went and I tell the story in the book and I went to the chow hall and I sat by myself. Now, I'm I'm leading the toughest bunch of, you know, SOBs in the planet. They were in Tora Bora. They were former SEALs. They were Green Berets or former Delta in, in Mogadishu with Black Hawk Down. And the base nearly fell apart. They were all like, oh, my God, is Mark mad at us? Like, you know, what's wrong with him? And I'm looking at them. I'm like, are you guys crazy? And I, and I called an all hands meeting. I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, well, you know, you're not eating with us. And I was thinking, like, these babies, are you kidding? But then, then I stepped back and said, okay, I failed here as a leader. What should I have done? Because they're all looking at me. What I should have done is, is told them, all right, everyone, I'm tired. i got to take a knee. I'm going to go on the side. Like, I'll see you, I'll see you tomorrow. Um, but I went, and I kind of – it looked like I was, I was angry or sulking in the corner. And the base of the toughest people on the planet nearly fell apart. And I love that principle because – and that's why I called it win an Oscar. So you have to have that kind of outward persona. And, and, and so the whole point is you, you kind of you go through these principles um, and you build teams and you lead in this fashion. And then ultimately, when you get to that time where is that where, you know, where you have that, that incredible kind of ambiguity, you're leading with no fear. The whole team's working as a unit. Someone on the outside might look at you and saying, how in the hell are they so confident? But really, you know, inwardly, you know, we're all good, um, even if you're, you know, kind of, you're, you know, you're in your happy place, you're in the gray. Well, it's interesting with the win an Oscar chapter and just especially the story you just told, because I'm thinking back to a couple of crews that I worked on. The, the most cohesive one was out in California. And, you know, our captain, uh, who's a good friend of mine now, even to this day, um, always ate with us. We shopped together. We cooked together. We cleaned dishes together. We, you know, everything, you know, one, if one works, we all work. That was their motto. And then conversely, one of the least cohesive, the lieutenant was, you know, in his office with the door closed. And so, you know, I think firstly to, to, to win that Oscar, you've got to have, you know, the, the, the self-belief and the training and the, you know, the strength and conditioning and everything that allows you to even portray that in the first place. But also, yeah, being seen, being amongst the crew, um, is so, so important. And I think that really does build distrust when you're always, you know, segregating yourself from the people you're supposed to be leading. Absolutely. I'm going to tell you one more principle. Can I tell you one more? Please, please. The Harper Collins is going to be like, shut up. Don't tell him anything. Else. <laughs> so one of my favorite principles in there is, is, and again, all this is seemingly obvious, but it's incredible how people don't practice this. So, so again, I can see like, you know, like the, the, the kind of the, the Harvard MBA business school crowd being like, boy, these are simple principles. And my retort would be, well, nobody practices them. So you should start with this kind of these basics. But I call it be a people developer. And that's the whole idea of, you know, as a leader, like we're responsible for passing the torch to the next generation. Um, it's, it's very simple. So, you know, I have you know, I, I'm not going to talk to you about it. I have a whole, you know, chest in, in, in the basement, you know, uh, uh, you know, of, of fancy intelligence medals. I was, you know, awarded the agency's second highest you know, uh, uh, metal. And, and so it's really impressive and it looks all fancy. And, and guess what? Nobody cares about that. I'm going to be remembered for passive, for being, a, being, being, you know, the mentor, being the teacher for junior officers. And, and one of the neatest things, um, you know, I did a book signing, uh, uh, the other day and one of my officers from Afghanistan back 2010 came and there's a lot of people there and I'm not concentrating enough. And my, my 18 year old kid later said, Hey, did you, did you see what he said? And I said, I don't know. I signed the book. There was a big line. He's like, he actually looked you in the eye and he's telling me this is my mistake. He's like, he said, Mark, you're the best leader I ever had. So that's all that matters. Not that not the fancy hardware, you know, in, in the basement. OK, so so a great story on be a people developer. Simple. It's mentoring. It's teaching. When I was a base chief in Afghanistan, very often I'm in, I, we're at this remote base in the east. 
I, I was called, you know, usually to, to Kabul station to get yelled at because I was we were too aggressive. And so I'd have to go and get my get my butt chewed out. And so I would leave. But what I would do is every single. So if we had a whole bunch of case officers, each time I left, I'd be like, you're running the base now. Now, I, this is not true. I'm still in country. I'm still the boss. But I said, you lead. And one time I was jumping on the helicopter and one in, in, in this officer uh, who now, who, who incidentally, it's the great stories. He's turned into a great leader. He says to me, he goes, hey, boss, I'll hold down the fort until you're back. And I was like, stop. There's no way. That's a, I want you to make every decision when I'm gone. I want you to make mistakes. I don't want to come back. When I hit the ground in 48 hours, we're rolling. Whatever you did, you know, and, and some of it you might you might have screwed up a little bit. Doesn't matter. But I don't want to come back and have any kind of, you know, sit down and have a review of what what you know you, you held down the fort. And I got in his face a little bit. <clears throat> and so that's a perfect example of, you know, so I, I taught each member of the team this. And, and the whole the, the, the whole point is, is down the line, when you have some kind of crisis, you can rely on these people to lead. These are your junior officers. But, you know, you've developed them as leaders. And it's so easy to do this. And, you know, and, and one of the things that I think that it really takes is and it's hard because, you know, so here I am. You know, I was a case officer. Then I get promoted to manager. I still have this competitive spirit. But guess what? You have to make that switch. It's not about me anymore. It's about the team. So if I make these guys and gals all better and give them a little bit, a little rope. Um, that's going to be really important down the line. And so that's why I, you know, I, I love that story. And, and again, I ran into this officer the other day and he's been, a, he's been a you know station chief in a couple locations. He's like, I'll never forget that. And I'll never, I'll never forget that, you know, at, at midnight in Afghanistan and the, you know, in the far ends of the earth with a helo with, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's loud and I'm screaming, you know, he's screaming in my ear. I'll hold the fort down. And I, I, I was, I didn't say I, it was, it, there was some, you know, F bombs that I went <laughs> back at him. Um, I'm like, no, you lead. And jumped on the helo and went out. And he's like, all right. And he led the base for two days. And leading the base there meant we took incoming fire. We had to fire back. I mean, there, there was huge decisions that he made. Uh, and then you come back and he's like, I got this now. Like, what incredible growth opportunity. So when I say people, be a people developer, that's what I really want um, to stress. And, and you can use this in all walks. In, in the firehouse, you could use this. There's a thousand ways you could, you could you know, you know, give people opportunities to lead um, in, in various situations. And uh, so I think it's really applicable. Absolutely. Well, one of the ones I had listed, one of the, the titles, and we don't have to go in it because, again, like I said, I don't want you to divulge the whole book, but, um, you know, is, is humility is best serve, serve oh, yeah. warm. So, and I think that's basically what you just talked about as well. If you, if your ego can't handle the fact that you're mentoring someone to, to most likely be better than you are, then you shouldn't be in a leadership position in the first place. I agree. And so, so you are going to be judged, you know, when you're dead, frankly, is, is, you know, who you mentored. Not the, cra- the fancy crap in the basement, you know, that's gathering dust. And so I, the, I think the, the, the biggest trait for, for a CIA officer, I always thought, was humility. And it, it's so counterintuitive because you're taught that you're like the biggest badass of all time. But, but, you know, then you get kicked in the face a lot and you understand humility is a really important trait because that's how you learn. Like great leaders own their mistakes um, and, uh, and, and, you, and you learn from them. And, 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 you know, you better not walk down the hall, you know, thinking your, your crap don't stink because it does. Uh, and, and, and just like just like intelligence operations go wrong very quickly, I'm sure when you're battling fires, same kind of thing. Like things can go really bad, um, and if you don't have that sense of humility, you know someone's going to get hurt. And so um, I love that. I love that uh, that trait as well. And I think it's a little counterintuitive. People think you know that you know that, that you're, you're kind of this this extreme you know badass, and you're really not. Um, and so that's that. I think it's really important. And, and I, I hope people identify with that as well. This is not a book where I'm thumping my chest ever. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's so important. So, so the book is Clarity in Crisis. Where can people find the book? So you can, it's on Amazon. Um, uh, the book landing page, the book site is clarityincrisisbook.com. 
Um, but certainly on Amazon and you know local bookstores are are are, are, are carrying it as well. It's got I'm excited. I've been talking about it a lot. It's got some great reviews, um, and uh, and I think really people are going to get a lot out of it. So uh, uh, you know, I, I, there 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 is a there is kind of a, a book tour that's kind of starting. I was up in New York City um, a couple of days ago. I'll make my way kind of out of the West Coast um, and hopefully down you know down south of Florida too at some point. And so. Um, I'm excited though, but and and, uh, and and the one thing that that I love doing is I'm also on Twitter at at it's at um, m polymer, and uh, and so people kind of send me you know direct messages all the time, um, and so I love interacting with folks who who mean something. I I've I've talked to you know I was just talking to a captain in the Philadelphia Police Department. Loved the book. Can you come talk to us? My buddy's a DEA agent. Same thing. Uh, you know, a minor league baseball coach. Uh, you know, for the Yankees, unfortunately, because I'm a big Red Sox fan. But he's like, <laughs> Can, you know, come talk to our team. And I love this. And so, you know, that's going to be the most valuable part of it when people kind of take a look and say, hey, I can use this. Um, and uh, and I've talked to, I talk to high school sports teams um, and CEOs and, and I'll, I'll talk to anyone on this. I get I, I get excited kind of kind of putting these principles forward because I think it's really useful. And I think it, it also gives people an idea of what CIA was all about. And that's one of my other goals, too, is to kind of talk about an organization that I deeply believed in. Absolutely. Well, I love. I also love the marriage of storytelling and principles. You know, I think it's a great way of you know portraying information. Um, so I'm going to move to some closing questions. If that's okay, if you got a few sure, minutes. Yeah. Um, so obviously that that's your book. Are there any books that you love to recommend um, to other people? It can be related to our discussion yeah. today or completely unrelated. So so uh, oh, oh my goodness. Okay. So so my favorite leadership books of all time have to do with and I'm Greek. So, you know, it, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it, it talks about, the, you know, it's the famous story of the battle of Thermopylae where you had, you know, the Spartans kind of, you know, uh, you know, stopping the invading, the invading Persians and, you know, the movie 300, um, kind of, you know, glorified this. And, and I will say, you know, people always ask, uh, you know, what, what movie kind of ran in war, in the war zones. I, I might've seen the movie 300, 300 times. Um, but it's, uh, but it really, it's Stephen Pressfield wrote a book, um, uh, uh, about this. Um, and do I have it right here? I'm going to forget even the title, but anyway, it's, it's Stephen Pressfield's book, um, about the battle of Thermopylae and that book, you know, I, I've given out, it's, you know, it, it's really a, a basics, basic class on, on leadership. Um, uh, in terms of life as a CIA case officer, uh, David Ignatius is a Washington post columnist. He's, he's kind of famous in foreign policy circles. And, and maybe 20 years ago, he wrote a book called agents of innocence. Um, and it's about it's a CIA case officer in uh, in in Beirut, Lebanon, and it's probably the truest representation of what life in the CIA is all about. Um, so I always kind of recommend that book uh, as a, a, as well. And so you know, I mean, that's that, there's there's kind of things that kind of kind of tug at my soul, and those are those are two of them that certainly do. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned three hundred. Are there any other movies or documentaries that you love to recommend? So in terms of uh, light, you know, the, you know, the espionage profession, um, you know, there's there's a it's this is getting a little, you know, a little deep into in, 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 into the weeds. Of course, you know, the, the Americans, everybody loved. Um, I think the Americans was on. I don't even know what, what it was on, but it was about it was about actually KGB officers posing as as Americans. A little far fetched, but that was interesting. There's a there's a, a series called Le Bureau. It's a French series about French intelligence, which is really good. And then probably my favorite, the, my favorite one on, on, uh, about the Middle East is a is an Israeli series called Fauda. It's about an Israeli undercover unit in the West Bank. Um, and so you know, there's there's it's very hard to get anything that is really accurate. 
Um, but those have some some elements of, uh, of, uh, of truth to it. And so these are things that we kind of all enjoy. You know, there's a network of, of us. We call ourselves the formers, you know, former senior agency officers. And so we're always trying to find the right, you know, the, the kind of the right film or, or, or series or, or book that really portrays things accurately. But there's a couple things out there. Beautiful. Well, if you ever do come down to Florida, you'd have to come watch Jason Bourne's stunt show. Absolutely. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right. So the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, sure. Wow. There's, there's, there's a whole bunch. I mean, I think that, you know, there are some of my former colleagues um, you know, who are, who are, you know, more eloquent than I am about this. Um, you know, John Cypher is one, uh, he was an ex, he is, and, and the reason why it would be relevant, he is, he is one of the agencies, he was one of the agency's most, you know, foremost experts on, on Russian intelligence and Russian intelligence operations, but, in, and is really eloquent in describing kind of the threat, uh, that the Russians pose to us, um, uh, uh, today. And then, and, and, there, and then, and then totally, completely separate, there's a guy I met through kind of my whole kind of wellness training. Um, and he is the chaplain for the LA Sheriff's Department. His name is Matt Demianchik. Um, and, and he does, and I, I'll send you kind of his stuff separately. And, and he is super into kind of the whole wellness, um, uh, genre for, for first, for first responders. But, you know, he does ride alongs. He's a former cop who was medically retired, but, um, you know, he, he's, he was, you know, 15 years ago, he was, you know, doing all kinds of Eastern medicine and journaling and meditation as he was a member of, you know, kind of the local Fairfax SWAT team here. Um, and so, you know, and he, he does podcasts too, and he's an amazing guest because he's really passionate about this. Yeah. Um, I had Matt on. He was oh, on, yeah, only about two weeks ago. So. Oh, you did? All right, yeah. there you go. <laughs> so I, I, Matt, Matt to me is, uh, is, uh, is inspiring. And, and, you know, if you get in a conversation with him, it won't last five minutes. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Well, then the uh, the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? Ah, so I still so I'm 52 years old. So God, it's just so silly. It's on Twitter, but I've I've you know and and, and I've I've a large Twitter following. So I, I still love lifting weights. Um, and I do everything my doctors tell me not to do, which is lift heavy. I'm 52 now. So so you know my the, the I I bench pressed 350 pounds back in 2010. Um, and my, my goal is, uh, is to get back to that. So, you know, I, it's so dumb and this, this is maybe narcissistic, but you know, so I, I, I put up 315 the other day and I think even 320. And I said, if I make the 350, I'm going to donate a thousand dollars to a TBI charity. But, but I, I love weightlifting. Um, I certainly, uh, uh if my, my belly's a little too big right now for my liking. Um, but, but lifting weights to me is, is my kind of escape. Um, and it has nothing to do with, with what I look like physically because I'm getting freaking old and, you know, the, the beach body, the beach body ain't there, but, but it's, it's, it's more how I feel and, and kind of, you know, that those, those goals that I can reach. Um, and so I still absolutely love lifting even in my, in my elder years. <laughs> Beautiful. So you mentioned your Twitter handle, um, and you mentioned the website. Are there any other places online that people can reach out to you? Uh, so, so it's really, it's at, at M polymer, you know, if, if, you know, directly is in a DM direct, you know, direct message. I really do answer a ton. I, you know, I, I mentor tons of college students who want to get into the national security field. I also, I talk to universities all the time, um, not about leadership, but just about joining up, you know, and, and what, what public service is all about. Um, and then just, you know, uh, clarity and crisis book.com is, uh, is the book. The other thing is I, I do, you know, the Harry Walker agency is a, is a speaker's bureau. And so I do some speeches there. So, you know, Harry Walker agency, if you plug in Polymeropolis, um, you know, uh, uh, and that's where, you know, the company will hire me to come give a leadership speech 
Um, so that's that's out there as well. And so I'm 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 probably for a former CIA guy, way too exposed. Uh, <laughs> but but ultimately, it's a, I, I enjoy talking to kind of to, to really the American people. And I've done tons of stuff internationally as well, talking to folks about what the agency is like. And so I, I enjoy the interaction. And and you know, again, if I can make a difference to one person. Um, so I, I really do answer a lot of, uh, a lot of mail. Beautiful. Well, I mean, I think with the, the choir professional, you know, professions collectively, I think there's a kind of misnomer between, you know, telling stories, but obviously then divul- diverging or divulging, excuse me, classified information. Those are two different right. things, you know, there's so much to learn from those, those professions. That I think it's important. So I'm glad that you wrote the book. I really enjoyed the book. So thank you so oh, much. It's very pertinent to, you know, a lot of the, the first responder professions as well. So, but thank you just for telling your story. I mean, even some of the, you know, the more courageous, transparent stuff about the, you know, the mental health. I mean, these, these are the conversations that people need to hear. And, and, you know, again, as with so many people on this show, the position you held is a very kind of alpha chest beating position, you know, but when people from these fields say, no, it's okay, you know, to, to, to struggle mentally, you know, what we do, what we see, um, you know, it, we need to hear that. We need to hear, obviously, the importance of strength and conditioning and training and all these other areas that you've discussed as well. So thank you for being so generous with your time today. Oh, thanks. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate it.